2 Kings chapter 5, and we're going to continue our study tonight of 2 Kings, and we are going to study together the amazing narrative of a man with leprosy, a, a man who is a great champion and military leader in the army of one of Israel's enemies, 2 Kings chapter 5, Naaman the leper. This is God's word. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the kings of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him Yahweh had given salvation to Aram. The man was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in marauding bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel and she waited on Naaman's wife and she said to her mistress I wish that my master were before the prophet who is in Samaria then he would cure him of his leprosy then Naaman went in and told his master saying thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel then the king of Aram said Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went and took in his hand ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, So now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now it happened... That when the king of Israel went to read the letter, he tore, sorry, read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to put to death and to make alive that this man is sending me word to cure a man of his leprosy? But know now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. Now it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious. And went away and said, Behold, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of Yahweh his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in wrath. Then his servants approached and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophets spoken with you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. 
Then he returned to the man of God with all his camp and came and stood before him and said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So now please take a blessing from your servant. But he said, As Yahweh lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods but to Yahweh. In this matter, may Yahweh pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, Yahweh pardon your servant in this matter? And he said to him, go in peace. So he went from him some distance. Then Gehazi, the young man of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, behold, my master has spared this name in the Aramean by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As Yahweh lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman, And Naaman saw one running after him, so he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all at peace? And he said, All is at peace. My master has sent me, saying, Come to, sorry, behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. Naaman said, Be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his young men, and they carried them before him. So he came to the hill, and he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house. Then he sent the men away, and they departed. But he came in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man of turned his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and all of groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female slaves? Thus the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your seed forever. And so he went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we have, many of us in this room, have heard this story before. It's remarkable. It's memorable. We pray that you would impress the truths that you have for us tonight, at this time, in this place, in these days. In your son's name, amen. It's a gripping account, a true account of an episode in Israel that is, on the one hand, encouraging, and on the other hand, very sad. But I want to tell you up front, very instructive for the time that we live in. How we conduct ourselves as Christians, as we conduct ourselves as a church, 
I entitled this message tonight, The God Who Doesn't Take Bribes. Maybe I could have entitled this message, The God Who Can't Be Bought. Elisha is the man of God. That phrase is used to describe him. And he is not the only man of God, but it's a particular title given to a man who who is God's man, God's servant, God's prophet, and is used of God in a particular way in this time, in this generation. He is a mouthpiece for God. And that is not of his own choosing. That was of God's appointment, God's call. Remember, Elijah came alongside Elisha, cast his mantle around him. So Elisha now is the man of God. And we're learning of how God used him in remarkable ways. But in everything that Elisha did, and we're fascinated with this man, I am, the stories, and we've learned much about him. Everything we learn about Elisha, we need to remember, we're really not meant in Scripture to be all that impressed with Elisha. Rather, it's Elisha's God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, that is being set before us. And this God, this God of Israel, make no mistake, is our God. He's the one we've sung of tonight. He's the one we've prayed to tonight. The God of Israel, the Lord is our God. For there is only one God of the scriptures. The situation we learn in chapter 5 verse 1 is a man named Naaman is commander of the army of the king of Aram. Now the Arameans are our traditional terrible enemies of Israel. They are those who are constantly harassing Israel, and we learn in a most frightening way that God had, in fact, raised up Naaman, this foreigner, this Aramean, to be successful as a means of judgment upon Israel. Verse 1, he was a great man, highly respected, because by him Yahweh had given salvation to Aram. Now, the Arameans don't know that. Naaman doesn't know that at this point. He doesn't know that Yahweh is the one who's giving him success in his raids into Israel. But that's the truth, that God is behind the scenes, providentially overseeing all things. And some might say, why is this happening? Well, the answer is not hard. God had warned his people, if they turn from him as Israel in the north has at this point, if they are idolatrous as they are, If they are engaging in worship of other gods as they are, then God would judge them and reject them. And God is judging them by raising up, commanding officers of foreign armies to be successful. So Naaman is a great commander of the Arameans, an enemy of Israel. At this point, there is a a peace that has been arranged. We've learned how God had on occasion defended Israel. He had continued to extend his mercy. But at the present time, there's a relative peace between these neighboring peoples, these neighboring countries. But Naaman was a leper. And as a leper, it was a disease that was understood that there was no cure. It was debilitating. It was a disease that no one wanted to have. And it would have an effect on Naaman's effectiveness as a commander of Aram. 
Now, in one of his, verse 2, one of his raids, they had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And we need to stop and think of how sad that is. How awful that would have been. Likely her parents were slaughtered. She's perhaps an orphan. She's taken away and she serves in the household of Naaman, learns their language. It's tragic, sad, awful. And yet, even in that heartache, God has purposes. God has this little girl. Are there any little girls here tonight? God can use little girls and little boys for his purposes. This little girl had heard of Elisha, the man of God, and heard what God had done through Elisha. And apparently Naaman was a decent master because this little girl seems that she is actually concerned for him. Verse 3, she says to her mistress, Uh, That is Naaman's wife or one of his wives. I wish that my master were before the prophet who is in Samaria, then he would cure him of his leprosy. The little girl um, sees that, knows that Naaman has leprosy, is concerned, and she knows that in Israel that God has a man through whom he can do extraordinary things. Things like cure poisonous stew, multiply loaves, raise boys from the dead. God can do that kind of thing. Multiply oil out of nowhere for a widow. These accounts have spread and they are told, and this little girl has heard of these things, and she very simply in faith understands and believes that there's a man, a prophet of God in Israel, who can handle leprosy. Nobody can handle leprosy, but this girl is undaunted, and she says, all that my master were before the prophet, and she's talking about Elisha, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to tell the king of Aram. Naaman is not the king, he's the commander, He hears this news, and he tells the king, and the king gives him not only permission to go and seek out Elisha in Israel, but also sends him letters. And when the king of Israel, verse 5, verse 6, rather, and following, receives this, he's horrified. What does the king of Aram mean by sending a leper to him to be healed. The king of Aram has heard that there's a prophet in Israel who can heal leprosy, sends his commander and says, with a present, I'd like you to heal my commander. And the king of Israel tears his clothes, verse 7, and in truth says, am I God to put to death and make alive? Of course, the answer is no. He's instantly put to fear. He doesn't have an answer. He doesn't know what to do because he does not know the God of Israel 
And it's remarkable that though God has in his mercy through Elisha shown multiple times what he's able to do, the king of Israel is yet unbelieving, does not believe that God can do such a thing. He's surrounded, he knows Yahweh of him, he knows other gods and goddesses, but he doesn't really think that there's any god or goddess that can really cure leprosy. Religion for him is a pragmatic thing. It's the kind of thing you got to do when you're a king, or it's just expected you do it before you go to battle. But you don't actually believe that God can do that sort of thing. So Elisha hears, verse 8, that the man of God, that the king, rather, is torn his clothes. It's a sign of, of mourning, of, of woe, of, of concern, because the king of Israel understands now that if he doesn't heal the king of Aram's commanding officer, there's going to be war. And Aram has shown that they can beat Israel. This is not a, this is not a little concern. He thinks this is a preface to war, that the king of Aram is goading him and putting him in an impossible situation. But he doesn't even think about calling upon Yahweh, and he doesn't even think about calling on the prophet of the Lord, the man of God who God has used in remarkable ways. He won't go to God in his time of need. It's amazing how men and women won't go to God in their time of need. And I don't mean just throwing up a prayer when when there's illness or sickness. I mean when you're really faced with it. Maybe it is sickness. Maybe it is a situation in your job, in your family, your marriage, your household, your children, in your own heart. It's amazing how in our self-sufficiency, we just won't go to God. I mean really go to God. I'm not talking about just having a kind of a, a prayer over your peanut butter and jelly sandwich at lunch. I mean getting aside into your room or somewhere outside and talking to God and call upon him in need. It's amazing how few people, even professing Christians, I, I, I'm sorry to say this, but I just believe there are too few professing Christians who ever come to that point where they're so desperate and, and in believing that they really, they really go to God and wrestle with him. Certainly, I, I know, too, the temptation to self-sufficiency. We are a proud and stubborn people. And this king, in his unbelief and in his self-sufficiency, doesn't even think to call upon God. So Elisha hears of it and asks a very good question, sends a messenger, verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 8. He sent a messenger, why have you torn your clothes let Naaman come to me and he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. Now listen, this is not Elisha, you know, beating himself on the chest. Hey, let him know, send him to me, I'll take care of it. Elisha is not here uh, impressed with himself or his own ability or thinking, I got that. He is God's man. He understands his role. He is a servant of Yahweh, the true God of Israel. And his God, the God of Israel, can handle this thing. And he, God, is still the God of Israel, even though he's judging Israel, even though he's 
um, rebuking Israel. He still hasn't broken ties with Israel. So here is the king of Israel lamenting that nothing can be done. And the man of God who represents Israel's God is saying, hey, uh, you haven't even tried. You haven't even tried asking God and so send him to me. Not because Elisha thinks he has the power in himself, but because he is absolutely confident that when God's reputation is on the line and his people's prosperity and safety is at stake, God will act. So, king of Israel sends Naaman. Naaman goes with his horses and chariots, verse 9, stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. And this is actually pretty comical. Naaman, I mean, Naaman is the highest military commander of the significant foreign nation next door. This is like the vice president coming to your house, so to speak. And Elisha doesn't even go to meet him. Doesn't show his face. Just sends a messenger, verse 10, and says to him, the message, what's the message? Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. Wow. (laughs) Naaman's furious. Why? Verse 11. He's come. He wants to be cured of his leprosy. He's come to the very prophet that the little girl spoke of that can cure him of his leprosy. And the prophet sends a messenger and says, here's how you do it. Go to the river, dip a few times, and be clean. Why is he furious? Verse 11. Answer. You ready? You know this. Pride. Pride. He really, really wants to be healed. He really wants his life to be changed, but he wants to be healed and he wants his life to be changed in a way that preserves his pride and stature. His high view of himself, what other people think of him. He's offended, if I can put it this way, by the simplicity of the gospel. I'm not saying that the gospel is in the message to go to the river and be cleaned, but the principle is there. It's just too simple. I got to do something. Pride, proudful mankind wants to contribute to his or her salvation. He's got to do something. He tells us why he's angry. He says, verse 11, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of Yahweh as God. He, he's okay with even God or Jesus being mentioned. Irreligious people who really need help. They're okay with religiosity. Got to have the service. Got to have the cleric, the clergy. You know, the whole de- deal. That we're, I'm good with that. Um, okay, you know, I know I need a change in my life. I'd like something better. But, I mean, I got to do something. And what is the gospel? Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Period. No penance, 
No great works, no great financial contribution. You can't do anything to contribute. This is God's work. And why is that? Why is God's message through Elisha so simple and so basic? Just go in the river, wash seven times. Here's the principle that we must, must grasp. We know it, but we need to understand it anew. God will not share his glory with anyone. He doesn't care if you're the vice president or the commander of the Arameans. He doesn't care if you own a business. He doesn't care what your grades are, what your money is. He doesn't care how good you are at sustaining yourself with your own ability. He's not impressed if you have a theological degree. He doesn't care how big your church is. He doesn't, none of that means anything to him. He is not going to allow you or any church to share in with him in his glory. It's his. He is God and there is no other. And that is set over in contrast to the other gods. All the other gods, all the other religions are deals. They're bargains. You go to the god or the goddess, you go to this religion, you give this, you put in this, and the expectation is then the god or goddess or the power will then, in the arrangement, give something to you. It's working together. It's, it's, a, it's a deal. And so at the end of the day, yes, this god or this goddess or this religion or this way of life really helped you, but you did it. And when you're talking to someone at the Christmas party next year and you talk about the change in your life, that you're talking about how you did, how you changed your life with this, this new way or, or so forth, but, and the person will say, good for you, good for you. That's wonderful that you changed your life that way. God won't share his glory with anyone. He alone is God, and there is no other. Naaman doesn't understand it. It's very humbling. There's a little bit more going on here, too, in terms of in the culture of that time, the land was associated with the God. He's in the land of the God of Israel. Uh, There's rivers over um, in the territory of the Arameans that he thinks are more beautiful. Um, It's just too simple for him. There's got to be something more for the sake of preserving his pride. His servants, verse 13, I mean, he's ready just, he's ready just to turn away and go back home. He's, he's, he's furious. I, I need to pause here. We need to understand this is the reason why most people don't believe and trust in Jesus. This is the dominant reason. This is the main reason. It's not because they don't understand the truth, though many don't. It's not because there's a lack or want of resources. It's that in order, the the gospel message of trusting in Christ alone for salvation is just too humbling. And it doesn't allow anyone in this culture, this culture of self and self-preservation and self-improvement, it doesn't allow anyone to claim credit. 
at the end of the story of your salvation, it's just God saved me. I didn't do anything. And in a culture like ours, especially, but this is common to humanity, that's too much. And so even though in New England, maybe we don't see the anger outright, in reality, there is a resentment against God at the simplicity of the gospel. We got to do something to save ourselves. Naaman is ready to go away in wrath, but verse 13 is servants, and these are kind servants. They, they see the situation. They see their their beloved master sick with leprosy. They know it's fatal. They know it's disastrous. Here they are, and they see the situation, and they go to him, and they reason with him. If he had asked you, verse 13, to do some great thing, would not you have done it now? Yeah, you would have. Why? Why wouldn't have made? Yes, he would have done some great thing, because then he could have told the story. Here was the very difficult thing, or the process, or the the rigmarole, the religious rite that the God of Israel asked me to go through, and I did this. And then when he went back to Aram, it would be part of the story of Naaman. If he'd asked Manasseh to do some great thing, they say, wouldn't you have done that? But how much more than when the prophet says to you, wash and be clean, wash and be clean. Very simple. Just, just, obey. Just obey the gospel, the good news. The principle is here. The message of how he can be healed is very simple, very plain. Just obey it and respond in faith. So he listens to his servants. They are good, wise servants. He went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. Why? Because the Jordan River was special? No. No. There's probably people out there. I, I, I'm sure there are people out there who are sick with different maladies and probably think, if only I could get to Israel and get into the Jordan River, surely that would be good for me. Maybe there's some good energy in that river. It had nothing to do with the river. It's just God's determination. This is how I'm going to glorify myself. You go and dip yourself seven times in the river, and I'll heal you. It was about the promise and the word. It wasn't about the water. He's healed. He's, he's overcome. He had responded. It took some reasoning, but he responded. He humbled himself. He bathed in the Jordan River. I'm sure there was an internal battle going on, but he, he humbled himself. God honored his humility and his response. God honored his word, and he was overjoyed because he was healed. And what was the result? Verse 15, now I know that there is no God in all the earth. You see, that's what God's after. He will not share his glory He will not share his glory with another. So he goes back and, and he wants to respond, and it's appropriate. He, he wants to express his gratitude 
Elisha is the representative of Yahweh. He is the man of God. And so he wants to respond with a gift. He wants to acknowledge what God has done. But verse 16, Elisha says, As Yahweh lives before whom I stand, Elisha is very clear about his role. He is just a slave. He's just a servant. He's very conscious of the glory of God. He's not impressed with himself. He says, I will take nothing. Why? Why? Because he wanted Naaman, this pagan foreign commander, to not only know that there's no God in all the earth, but listen, that God can't be bought. He can't be bribed. He is all self-sufficient. He stands in no need of people. He doesn't need our gifts. He doesn't need our talents. He doesn't need our money. He is almighty God, glorious inherently in himself. This is ludicrous. The, The world doesn't understand this. False religions don't understand this. This is insanity. But the greatest concern that Elisha has is to help Naaman understand not only is there no other God, but he wants him to understand the true nature of that God. This is why, in part, we conduct our church the way we do. It's pretty stark, I know. And um, again, I have these conversations from time to time, and, and uh, I'm just keenly aware that it, it seems to some that the way in which we don't lay hold of some of the marketing tactics that you can, um, it just makes no sense. Uh, why we insist in our, our times, we really want to be welcoming to new people, and it's been a blessing to have visitors lately and, and encouraging to see some of them coming regularly. And we want to share Christ with anyone who comes through the door. And we want to be kind, and we mean sincerely when we say, we're really glad you're here but we're not a business. We are not a business. We're not looking for religious customers. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't need worshipers. He seeks them. He doesn't need them. God is the eternal blessed God. It's hard for us to get our heads around this. God is as happy and blessed now as he was in eternity past before there was anything. He's all sufficient. He's not lacking or wanting in anything. He deals with us out of the overflow of the blessedness of who he is. Out of the glory of of who he is we come to him and we worship him because of who he is because of who he made us to be and because it is our privilege to come to him how we conduct ourselves as a church must preserve this truth that God does not share his glory 
and the reason we worship him is not because it works. It's not because it's a good way, not because there's immediately any benefit to us. We worship him simply because of who he is. He does not stand in need of us. He's just that good and that glorious. He's the awesome God. We're going to close tonight in verse 19, but let's just finish and we'll continue on um, in a couple of weeks with the rain or chapter 5. Naaman gets it. It must have made an impression upon him. I've seen this before uh, in, in folks who have come to the faith or maybe they're not used to church. And when they pick up that I or the church am not after their money, you can almost see it. There's almost a shock. They don't understand. We're not after your money. I mean, eventually, yeah, the Bible will teach you that you need to worship God with your giving, for example. But we're really not after your money. We're not after your approval rating. We're just about the truth. That's all we're doing. The truth of who God is and the simplicity of the gospel for the glory of God. It must have made an impression upon Naaman. And it did because we know in verse 17 he's immediately conscious of a problem, a challenge he has. He is the right-hand man of the king of Aram, and the king of Aram worships another god. Not Yahweh, but he worships this god named Rimon, one of the gods of the Arameans. And Naaman is the king of Aram's servant. And he immediately understands that he can't worship that god anymore. He can't worship any god because there is no other god. He understands, and this is remarkable, that the God of Israel, the God of his nation's traditional enemies, that God is the only God in the whole earth. And so what's he going to do now? He's got to go back to Aram, and he's immediately faced with a very sensitive situation because his king worships not Yahweh, but Ramon. And so he asks for pardon he understands that when he goes into the house, apparently the king is, is rather older. And so the commander assists his king in his worship of Ramon. But Naaman asks for two loads of earth. First of all, because when he goes back, he knows he's going to be in a foreign land. And God had promised to Israel that that land was their land. And, and this isn't, um, I don't think he's being... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? He's not, he's not being, uh, um, I can't think of the word. He's not superstitious. There's the word, very simple word. He's not being superstitious. He's being reverent. He, he wants to, in his worship, kneel on the earth and the land of Israel because that's the land of the God who saved him. He wants to worship Yahweh in truth and he, and he wants to do that with all his heart. But he's in a real difficult situation. And it's very easy for us to say, well, you know, just, just don't go in with the king. I, I don't, you know, it's a difficult situation. But isn't it interesting that he asked for pardon 
and he appeals to the truth of the situation. Because of my role, I will be assisting the king. I will be walking in with him. And because he will kneel, I will have to kneel with him. But, oh God, I want you to know that's not my heart. And I'm only doing it because of my role. Please pardon me. It's very, it's very moving. There's a great deal of humility and a deep consciousness of his desire to be loyal to the God of Israel. And God, through his servant, says, go in peace. He, he sees the heart of this man. He's not compromising. He's true. And he says, go in peace. And so he went from him some distance. So what a wonder that Naaman, the commander of the king of army of the king of Aram, becomes an example of a man converted by grace alone, through faith alone, in God alone. Let's pray. God, we praise you for your all self-sufficiency and your glory and your zeal for your name. And we pray that in this time and in this place, in this generation, in this culture we're in right now, where everyone is so impressed with their ability to fix their own life with this way or this pill or this pattern or this exercise routine or this doctor, that in this generation we might be humbled thanking you for the gifts that you give us, some of the tools that you give us in our life, but leaning upon you and you alone. And we pray that we would not be offended by the simplicity of the gospel and that tonight we would remember it, that, that your message to us in regard to our sins is essentially wash in the blood of Christ and be cleansed. That's it. Believe and you will be saved. And I pray that you'll help us to remember that. And that like Naaman, we will rejoice that we are washed, that we are cleansed of our leprous sin. And that we will rejoice tonight that you save us, not out of need, but out of love. Love for us and for the praise of your grace and your glory. May we be zealous like Elisha was for guarding your reputation, guarding your glory. And may we do nothing to deceive or miscommunicate men and women about who you are and who they are. Move among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.